So Bitcoin gives these basic rights of speech and property, which really are the foundation for so many other rights. Because you know, together they 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 you know form the framework for for commerce and transactions and growth and business and all these things. So we just talk about those two kind of most basic rights. A lot is built on top, and and Bitcoin gives those rights. You know, really for the first time to to, to just billions of people. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Alex Gladstein, chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation, discusses his new book, Check Your Financial Privilege, and how cryptocurrency can aid in pulling people out of poverty. Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and research associate, sits down with Gladstein to discuss what's happening, for example, in Nigeria where human rights activists depend on Bitcoin for donations. In Cuba, those who saved in Bitcoin managed to stay afloat after a dual currency system devalued the peso. In El Salvador, where remittance fees and exchange rates can eat away simple money transfer to family members in need, Bitcoin offers hope with lower fees and faster transactions. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. Alex has also served as the Vice President of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum since its inception in 2009. He has written widely on human rights and technology for diverse publications including The Atlantic, The New Republic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Wired, and Bitcoin Magazine. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Check Your Financial Privilege, Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. Alex, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So when we talk about human rights, a lot of the categories we use to talk about that, we'll talk about liberal democracy, rule of law, access to courts, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. These are the lenses we typically use to look at questions about human rights. This book frames financial systems and access to financial systems as human rights issues. How are these human rights issues and how does this lens help us see the state of global human rights in a new way? Sure. Well, I'm looking at human rights from a civil liberties perspective. So let's think about negative rights, liberties in the true sense. Some of those liberties include free speech and property rights um, and the ability to, to transact and do commerce between different parties. Bitcoin gives human rights because it actually kind of encodes these things and allows any individual in the world to actually achieve these things in a way that was never before possible. The most obvious one is property rights, uh, obviously a sacred foundation for many other human rights. Property rights have always been something that have existed at the pleasure of the state, meaning the state can come and just take your property rights away. 
um, we've tried to create societies like in the United States and other places that that protect property rights as much as possible with uh, the court of law, due process, free speech, uh, independent media, um, giving citizens different ways to both secure their property and then push back against any arbitrary seizure. Um, but at the end of the day, you're always like relying on a, on a counterparty to help you enforce your property rights. With Bitcoin, you don't need that counterparty anymore. With Bitcoin, you can take the fruit of your labor, the time and energy that you spend working in exchange for goods and services, and you can take an asset that you receive in exchange, a money, um, and you can secure that with mathematics in a way that no one can confiscate from you. That is incredibly powerful and and has never been possible before. Um, so that's number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, this is not dependent on the sort of institutional context that that a lot of other rights um, we've crafted institutions to help secure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that intrinsic in itself, in its in in the way it operates, it secures it secures those rights regardless of institutional context. Yeah, and most importantly, this is true for somebody in Alabama, as it's true for somebody in Tibet or Palestine or uh, Lugansk, uh, Bitcoin is completely open and permissionless and cannot discriminate against its users. It doesn't care what kind of nationality you have, what belief set you carry, what gender you are, what wealth level you have. A billionaire and a refugee are the same in the eyes of the protocol. So it gives property rights to everybody in the world uh, who has at least some sort of internet access. It's very important to understand that you don't need constant internet access to use Bitcoin. You can own an address. You can own the key to that address, um, which can be, when I say key, I mean really password. That password can be 12 words, 12 English words that you've memorized or written down on a piece of paper. That's that's your key um, to move the funds, to spend them, right? Yeah. So, so the address, which is kind of like your mailbox that you provide to people, um, can be disseminated around the world, can be put on the internet as a static thing. And you can have the key, meaning the key to your mailbox. Uh, you can keep it offline. You can keep it on your body. You can keep it, you can break it up and give different parts of it to different family members. You can scatter it. You can, you can make it very secure. But the point is that like people can be sending you value and you don't need to be on the internet. You can be in the middle of the desert somewhere with no internet at all. And people can be sending you money. Like this is, this is very important to grasp because it shows kind of just what one of the features, why it's such a good wartime um, currency and a conflict zone currency, as well as for everybody. But it especially works well when there's like a breakdown in infrastructure. Um, the address, it's a push system. So the, the address can continue receiving funds, even if you're not online, which is, which is really, really important and interesting, obviously for the, let's say bottom 50% of the world in terms of their access to infrastructure, electricity, internet, et cetera. Um, now, beyond property rights, you also have this idea of free speech. You can build social media um, uh, applications kind of, quote unquote, on top of Bitcoin, which are uncensorable, um, which is obviously super interesting in today's world of deplatforming and canceling, et cetera. Um, that's, I mean, we could spend hours talking about that alone, but the implications for free speech in the next decade are going to be pretty big. If you think about like, if you're a content creator or you're a podcaster um, and you're creating content. Uh, normally, the way a government or authority would seek to, to to thwart you would be to prevent you from receiving uh, payment or donations or or 
or you know fees from your users, and that's not possible anymore. So you can just collect those in Bitcoin um, or over the Lightning Network, and and you know there's nothing really they can do about that. Now you know it's important to underline that the government can still do a five dollar wrench attack, which is what it's known in the industry, meaning they can still come to your house and beat you up and try to like find where your keys are and stuff. Yeah, but if you've been careful, uh, you know you you can you can take a lot of measures against that. So you know. It's 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 not like gold where like if you had some under your bed and they came to your house, they would just take it and that's the end of it. There are clever ways for you to make it so that even if the boots, the, the jackbooted thugs come to your house, they still you can make it so that they still can't <laughs> they still can't take your stuff. It's 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 actually kind of interesting. So so yeah, so Bitcoin gives these basic rights of speech and property, which really are the foundation for so many other rights. Cause you know, together they, 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 you know, form the framework for, for commerce and transactions and growth and business and all these things. So we just talk about those two kind of most basic rights. Um, a lot is built on top and, and Bitcoin gives those rights, you know, really for the first time to, to, to just billions of people. Um, now a lot of that is not realized yet. We're very early. Um, there, there's a surprising number of Bitcoin users. I was looking the other night. Um, the Indonesian government just released a statement saying that officially it recognizes almost 13 million people in Indonesia as Bitcoin or cryptocurrency holders or investors or users, um, which is a staggering number um, for, for, for a developing world country. Um, in the United States, it's estimated that around one in five Americans has used cryptocurrency in some way. So that would be about 65 million people. Um, you want to be more conservative, maybe we're more at 40 or 50 million, but um, globally we're at around 200 million from what we can understand. And it might be a lot higher than that. And it's important to understand that Bitcoin adoption is growing on an exponential curve, um, very similar to the internet in the late nineties. Um, so that by 2025 or six, we, 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 you know, very likely will be, um, uh, over a half billion, if not a billion users. So we're moving very quickly uh, into the future here. So what we're looking at here is how, how people are using this is essentially the way that they've used, you know, what, what people will call bearer assets for a long time in terms of, you know, final settlements for payments. Now, because of the way the protocol operates and because it's this layer of abstraction, it doesn't have a lot of those downsides in the way that it's very easy to seize, you know, as you pointed out, gold, physical cash, that sort of thing. Um, in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the pseudonymous uh, creator of Bitcoin, sought specifically to, to create a sort of form of digital cash when designing Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, in what sense is that helpful in securing human rights in, in sort of like concrete ways? Um, and in what way um, has Bitcoin been successful in this? And in what way, what are some sort of obstacles either to that adoption or to present sort of modes of implementation of, of the protocol? Well, I mean, I think it's important just to reflect on like the reasoning for the creation. You know, these civil, yeah. civil liberties activists in the 70s and 80s and 90s realized that the digitization of society was going to lead to some alarming trends with regard to consolidation and control of information and our, our basically our, our abilities to uh, collaborate 
and interact as citizens. Um, they were afraid of the rise of the computer state. Um, and it, it came and it's here. I mean, we've all seen this as Americans, like the, the Snowden revelations. We've seen just how um, little the government really cares about our, our basic fundamental rights. Um, so they decided to build software, open source software that anybody could use that would, that would, that would again, that would, that would seize these rights where we would be seizing them first, then asking for forgiveness later. Like, like the, these rights can't be taken. They, they, they're part of our, they're part of us, that they're, they're something that really can be, you know, achieved in a way that, that really hasn't been achieved before. And it started with communications with PGP in the early nineties, which is now later a technology family that, that powers apps like signal that allow two mobile phone users anywhere, anywhere in the world to exchange a message with, with a very high degree of privacy. It's pretty amazing. That's all open source code. Um, it's not, you know, owned or run by a, by a company, so to speak, the code itself, at least, um, it can be forked, it can be copied. Um, and the holy grail there was to, was eCash, was to be able to have also a money system for the internet that couldn't be stopped or controlled. And there were many trials and tribulations and experimentations. And ultimately, a lot of the cypherpunks realized that there couldn't be a central issuer of the money. Um, there was an early experiment called DigiCash uh, in the mid-90s that created pretty much anonymous money. So like the privacy side was sort of fixed, but, um, but because it was still centralized, there was a company issuing it. This was a huge vulnerability. The company ended up, you know, going bankrupt, going under and the project collapsed, but people also realized it was an attack vector for governments. So they basically, these cypherpunks realized, okay, well, we can't have a centralized issuer. So then there was a decade of thinking and experimentation about, well, how do we, how do we make a decentralized monetary issuance happen? How do we, how do we have a central bank without a central bank? Um, and that's where proof of work comes in, you know, kind of iterated and innovated by Adam Back. Um, I wrote a long essay for this that the readers might, uh, listeners might like to read called The Quest for uh, digital cash. Um, it's a profile of Adam Back and his contributions to the space. But essentially, he figured out that uh, he was doing some work on like email and how to reduce spam email. And like maybe you could pay a little bit of money uh, to reach somebody, you know, in a sense. So he thought that, okay, well, maybe to generate coins in this new system, you could pay a little bit of energy or electricity rather. Um, and that that's the foundation that Satoshi later um, kind of, you know, took and then iterated on to create Bitcoin mining. Um, so today in Bitcoin, uh, the new coins are issued not by a central bank or by a company or by a small group of people that can debate and discuss how, you know, how that should change moving forward. Should there be more inflation, less inflation? That's not relevant. Um, the issuance is done by a global competition whereby the new coins are allocated at a predetermined schedule. Uh, that that is known to the world, completely public and open and transparent. And we all know what the issuance is going to be forever, like for the next 10, 20, 30, 100, 200 years, like we know exactly how it's going to go. Um, and then people are simply competing uh, by spending electricity to receive like, a, uh, the you know, basically these new coins. Like that's really what the miners are doing. Like currently today, more than 95% of the of the electricity expended to mine Bitcoin is not to process transactions. This is a huge myth. It's to actually create new Bitcoin. That's what the electricity is being spent on. Only a very small percentage 
of the electricity is being spent to process transactions, tiny percentage. Almost all of it today is being used to issue new Bitcoin. Now, over the next 100 years, that will change and shift. And 100 years from now, all of the electricity being spent on Bitcoin mining will be used to process transactions. But for now, it's meant it's 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 to issue new bitcoins. So every ten minutes, uh, a new chunk of bitcoins come into existence. They're delivered to the miners. The miners can either hold them or sell them out into the open market. And this is how we went from having zero bitcoin in January of two thousand nine to having close to nineteen million today. And the the remaining two million or so bitcoin will be brought into existence by miners over the coming 120 years. Um, sometime around the year 2140, the issuance will cease and there'll be no new Bitcoin. So I think it's important to understand that um, it was a long you know, few decades of experimentation around thinking of how could we kind of protect our rights from the state. Um, first people figured out how to, how to enforce free speech and privacy, and then they figured out how to do e-cash, and then they finally figured out how to do e-cash that the government couldn't uh, sort of manipulate with regard to issuance. And 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 that that that's really the magic behind behind Bitcoin. So this energy cost is involved in tying this to something in the real world that. At the same time, sort of, you know, there's a there's a cost to operating any financial system and any sort of monetary policy. And this is a way that that's accomplished in a decentralized manner um, where you can't have a single point of failure for, for, for cash as you can in other contexts. Now, the costs to operating the Bitcoin network are, are very obvious. These are these, you know, the cost of the electricity. And there's sort of been an uninterrupted um, deluge of stories for, for going back years now in the mainstream press about the amount of energy used in Bitcoin mining, about how Bitcoin will consume all of the world's energy by 2018 and then they push it back to, you know, 2020, 2026. Um, What's that analysis missing um, when when they forecast that that Bitcoin will literally sort of consume the world? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple, there's a lot here. Um, I personally find Bitcoin and energy to be an amazingly fascinating topic that that I that I just kind of could, you could think and talk about for a long time, but. Um, I think that Bitcoin is many things, you know, again, we started this conversation by talking about how it's human rights and how it helps give people property rights and free speech and other basic civil liberties. Um, people who might live under authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, like they may not be able to have the kind of political freedom that we have in the broader sense, at least in the next day or week or month. Those transitions take a long time, um, maybe hundreds of years in the case of the United States. So, um, but with Bitcoin, you can get like an immediate upgrade to someone's life, like right now, which why I think, which is why I think it's like really like very important advocacy and activism. We can today help other people how to how to get financial sovereignty and how to how to become someone that can interact with the whole world financially, which is has just not been the case for almost everybody in world history until very recently, and and only only for a very small percentage of people um, so far. Um, so we have the human rights case. The energy piece is, is very interesting. Again, I've just explained that 
the energy piece is essential. This is this is how you have a digital currency that has no centralized issuer. You have to have a competition of a, of a real world um, expense in the form of electricity. Uh, this is how the system cannot be gamed. Um, this is how you reduce monetary corrupt or eliminate monetary corruption. Uh, this is how we don't have like some central banker saying, oh, we should you know target inflation at a certain rate. No, 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 no. This is, we're going to have a particular kind of inflation and we're all going to know. It's going to be the same for, you know, again, a billionaire as it is for a, a worker making minimum wage. Like the money will be the same for everybody, which is totally different from today. Today we have the Cantillon effect, which is that people who are closer to the money spigot benefit first and most, and then people who are farthest away from the money spigot actually suffer um, d- due to monetary inflation. Yeah, and this is one of the costs of the current sort of financial yeah, system. Yeah, the current system has this huge negative externality in the form of the Cantillon effect. And, you know, where, where really inflation um, ends up um, centralizing the society because it empowers larger businesses at the expense of small businesses. Um, and it, it, it empowers uh, cap, basically capitalists over workers. Um, um, and it, it just leads to like crazy inequality. I mean, the whole that I'm describing the current kind of fiat system yep. post gold standard, like it leads to insane inequality as you're seeing. I mean, I think Oxfam released a study and, you know, we can debate about whether or not we think it's a legitimate study, but you know, they said during the pandemic, basically the 1% did super well and the 99% of the world like suffered. So that's entirely a reflection of the monetary protocol that we use. So um, if we think about Bitcoin and energy, we've got this new system. It requires energy um, to mint coins, but it's a lot, lot more than that. I mean, it's, it's, it's look, this, the, the, what's interesting is that the early Bitcoin people were thinking about this. Um, but they, but but we've gone so so far beyond. So like the second tweet, I think Hal Finney ever tweeted, and Hal Finney was the first basically collaborator with Satoshi Nakamoto. They received the first Bitcoin transaction. They were the first person to tweet about Bitcoin. Um, they tragically died, uh, I believe, of uh, I think it's sort of ALS type disease, uh, maybe seven years ago. Um, they are cryo frozen, so who knows? Maybe we'll get Hal back in the future. That would be cool. Um, but basically, like. I think the second thing Hal ever tweeted was something about how, thinking about how to reduce carbon emissions uh, through Bitcoin, right? And um, I think where we're currently at in the world is is interesting. Like Bitcoin mining is is of a much lower carbon intensity than the American electric grid. So I believe the American electric grid as a whole is, is somewhere in the high 30s in terms of uh, its renewable energy uh, percentage. And Bitcoin mining is, is close to 60%. Um, now we're having a whole debate now about what does this really mean and how important is this stuff in the light of Putin's invasion of Ukraine and energy shortages worldwide. And I think you have more of a mainstream agreement that um, natural gas, especially and fossils, will be playing a much bigger role than people had expected or hoped, at least for a while. But it remains that Bitcoin miners don't care about that. They just care about the cheapest possible energy. So their margin for profit is very small. It's kind of like gold mining. Um, so they're going to be hunting around for the cheapest energy in the world. And that's going to bring them to some very interesting places. It's going to bring them to the Arctic. It's going to bring them to jungles. It's going to bring them to oceans. It's going to bring them to places where nobody else is, where there's plentiful, in many cases, renewable energy. So you might, you might, on the one hand, you might have um, entrepreneurial Bitcoin miners realizing that at, at current um, natural gas sites, you can take advantage of flared or unused natural gas and you can mine Bitcoin with that 
you know, gas that would otherwise be released into the atmosphere burned up, like causing massive harm. Um, you're seeing that now. I mean, Exxon is literally doing this. They're partnering with Crusoe Energy to do this. So 13 years after Hal Finney tweeted about this, you now have one of the world's largest oil companies, <laughs> largest energy companies in the world, Bitcoin mining to, re- to, re- to just, you know, not only reduce carbon emissions, but also make its operations more efficient. This is completely remarkable. Um, so you're going to see a lot more in this area. I mean, if you think about the waste of energy, the, the wasted energy in America alone is like many, many orders of magnitude larger than the energy expended into the Bitcoin network each year. Um, you could run the Bitcoin network entirely off of uh, landfill methane emissions just in the United States, for example. Um, the US decommissioned more nuclear power last year than is required to run the entire Bitcoin network. So, so all of this like hand wringing about Bitcoin's energy usage is all nonsense, in my opinion. It's all just disguised contempt for what Bitcoin is, which is taking power away from the establishment. Um, it's not actually out of concern for the environment. Like the number of times I've seen people who fly private jets to Davos complaining about Bitcoin's energy usage is astronomical. Um, these people don't actually care about the environment. They're just virtue signaling. Now, the cool, the cool part about Bitcoin, though, is that it, it's not virtue signaling. Like, it will economize uh, stranded renewable energy that otherwise can't be harnessed. And you are seeing this, geothermal, hydro, uh, wind, solar, all over the world. Like, you're going to just see places that have plentiful resources finally be able to harvest them. Because, and this is the most important point, you don't need to be near a population center to harvest energy for Bitcoin. You just need a Starlink. You could be in the middle of nowhere. Um, as long as you have an internet connection for mining, you can you can convert that energy uh, into hard money, and 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 that's incredibly interesting. So it, you know, there's been some theories about how you know how humans have always settled historically along rivers and water. Um, well, I mean, you you could start seeing population centers and economies build up around. Um, cheap renewable energy, uh, where it previously might have been made no sense. Like you might have a volcano in the middle of nowhere, where it made no sense to have any sort of economic activity. Well, all of a sudden, if you can mine Bitcoin efficiently there, um, ditto uh, a dam, ditto you know uh, an area of the country that's particularly windy, whatever. Um, all of a sudden, it makes sense to invest, build out energy harvesting or farms there, and then mine Bitcoin. Um, you're also going to see a lot of like, um, like projects get like bootstrapped through Bitcoin mining. Like you're going to see new communities and industries uh, pop up where the Bitcoin, like, like it takes years and years to build a particular thing. Um, and, and yet as soon as the power grid piece is built, you can immediately start generating revenue. Like you don't have to wait the years and years to connect up uh, everybody to the grid. And the other final important piece to note here is that Bitcoin is, is going to be kind of like the buyer of uh, kind of first resort, last resort type thing. Like it, 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 again, marginal uh, profit, um, just sort of very low. Uh, So other, other energy consumers are going to, are going to outbid Bitcoin. 
right? Bitcoin miners. So Bitcoin miners might be the first to pop up in a remote place, but as soon as like the, you know, the community comes on, the grid comes on, companies are coming on, residences are coming on, they're going to be paying a lot more per kilowatt hour than Bitcoin miners are. So the Bitcoin miners will go elsewhere. So all of this is very important to understand that Bitcoin is, is not like an, you know, it's a non-rival consumer of energy. It's not going to be like competing with residences. It's also final piece, which is very interesting is that it's like, in an energy grid scenario, it's got a very interesting role to play from a demand response point of view, where like you can basically overbuild your grid with Bitcoin mining um, so that you never have to have like an energy grid crisis. Like you can always just have more energy than you need. And that extra can be used for mining Bitcoin. And then when there's a crisis, you turn the Bitcoin miners off. They're like one of the only energy consumers that can be turned off immediately with the switch of a button and then turned back on on demand. So a, a lot of this is this deep, rich discussion about humans and our relationship to electricity. And Bitcoin's going to play a huge role in that, in my opinion, just as big of a role as it will play for individual rights and for commerce. Yeah. So it helps, it helps, it helps arbitrage those situations um, and realize some efficiencies in the energy market that maybe weren't possible before then. Now, when, when you pointed to the critics of Bitcoin sort of latching onto this. And I think I think you're right. I think I think this is not the primary concern. And you can see it because there's also simultaneously, as there are many jurisdictions sort of in various stages of hot and cold war with Bitcoin in terms of regulatory environment, there's also uh, various stages around the world of sort of hot and cold wars against cash and um, a desire to go to cashless systems to curtail things like tax evasion, criminal activity. These are the reasons that are given, but it also is is something that curtails freedom of exchange necessarily. Um, it you know the desire is to get sort of all commercial activity surveyed um, by the state um, for for potentially you know legitimate reasons, but also very much potentially for illegitimate reasons. Um, how does Bitcoin solve this problem um, as you have systems, um, as you have institutions increasingly going cashless, as you have sometimes people whose access to bank accounts, payments, as we've discussed before, have been frozen? Um, how does Bitcoin help in sort of real world circumstances, but let's say, let's say, uh, you know, dissidents in a context of an authoritarian regime. How does this, where they might have been frozen out of their own financial system, what does this allow them to do um, to work around those institutional failures? Well, I'll give an example. In Belarus, the regime uh, in 2020 started cracking down on a national protest movement. Lukashenko started freezing bank accounts of protesters, people he didn't like. Um, so it was very hard to get them money uh, from abroad if we wanted to support them. But guess what? They all had phones, highly connected population. And we, through intermediaries and partners, just started sending them Bitcoin. And there was nothing the regime could do about it. So, I mean, that's a very simple explanation. In Nigeria, there was a, an analogous event that happened at the end of 2020. There were huge protests against police brutality. The government started freezing the crowdfunding platforms of the Feminist Coalition, which was the group that was kind of one of the groups behind organizing the protests. 
so they turned to Bitcoin and they were able to continue to raise money to keep the protests going. So, you know, I'm someone who believes in, in, in that, in the long run, Bitcoin will, will, will augment and enhance not only American values like free speech, property rights, open commerce. Um, these things resonate with what Bitcoin is very deeply. And I think will make for a much stronger America in the future, much more equal America. Um, but also it, it, um, it, 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 it's also very kind of like, uh, in my view, a progressive, uh, uh, ideal. I mean, it, 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 it is kind of whatever you want it to be. I mean, it's, everybody kind of has different things they see in it that they like, but I, I do feel like it's, it's something that's, that can also be seen as a, in a progressive sense, um, in, in that, in, in that sort of empowering sense in terms of in terms of that, it gives monetary equality of opportunity. Like it, 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 it's, it's an equal and fair playing field for everyone. And there's no kind of like backdoor deals that can be made to empower certain people over others at the base level, which is just kind of amazing. Yeah. No barriers to entry that there are, you know, for many other aspects to, to many financial systems around the world. Um, now, this has not gone unnoticed by authoritarian regimes. There have been various efforts. Um, I, I know this has happened in, in China now several times, efforts to ban Bitcoin or restrict Bitcoin transactions. Um, that has been very difficult. Um, what are the sort of um, – is it simply that – regimes so far do not understand Bitcoin well enough to regulate it? Or do you think that there's a, there's a sense in which the sort of control that they often exercise over their own financial systems is not a sort of control that they could ever exercise over Bitcoin, even within their sort of political jurisdictions? I guess I would just say that governments have tried to crack down, some quite aggressively, some have tried not at the network level. I mean, all this speculation about governments like attacking the Bitcoin network is, I think, kind of just fantasy. Um, but what, but what is not fantasy? What is a hundred percent reality is attacks on users and on making it harder for you to use Bitcoin. So the Chinese government has had a long history of trying to prevent Chinese citizens from using RMB uh, or yuan um, to buy Bitcoin uh, or to speculate on cryptocurrencies. They've recently um, cracked down on mining. Uh, they haven't been able to eliminate it completely, which is kind of amazing for the world's biggest and most proficient police state. They've been unable to eradicate Bitcoin mining, which is really just amazing. Yeah. I mean, life life finds a way, I guess. Absolutely. Um, if there's cheap electricity, someone, someone's going to use it to mine Bitcoin, regardless of whether you have a communist police state in the neighborhood or not. Um, but uh, I guess is the lesson there. But, you know, the Indian government has tried to restrict Indians from buying Bitcoin. They got overturned that that got overturned by the Supreme Court there. So there's some countries that have different institutions that push back in Nigeria, the government largest country in Africa, the government has tried to uh, restrict uh, if you have a Naira bank account, uh, Naira denominated sort of local bank account. Um, and you're like making payments to a cryptocurrency exchange, they've they've often like blocked or frozen your account. So there's there's all kinds of like attempts governments have made to stop citizens from using it, but it, it hasn't worked. We continue to grow exponentially. Um, the good news is in the United States, there's actually a lot of positive 
movement. I mean, there are governors, senators. Um, just yesterday, we had two bipartisan group of senators release, you know, a bill that's not going to pass, but it's a bill that provides a framework for like uh, Ameri- Americans' rights to, to access, use, and hold Bitcoin. I think that's really positive. Again, you have governors who want to make their state the mecca for Bitcoin mining, a bunch of them, you know, whether it be, you know, um, Kentucky, Texas, Wyoming, um, even, even, and it's bipartisan, like California is making a lot of noise about wanting to be very pro Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Um, you've got, again, everybody from Ro Khanna all the way over to Ted Cruz um, being open and interested in this. I think that you're going to see this become a political thing in the United States, where by three, four, five years from now, like being anti-Bitcoin will be like basically political suicide. It'll be crazy. There's too many Americans who use it and benefit from it. Um, you'll need to have a position that that helps those people as opposed to tries to fight them. Um, so our political system is, cha- I think, is changing in the right direction now. I mean, of course, like, like we need to be vigilant and know that elements of our government are are, are going to want to like prevent this from happening. Uh, Treasury um, in particular is going to be eventually, they're not, I don't think they're that concerned right now. I mean, Janet Yellen just gave a speech like a month ago talking about Satoshi Nakamoto and the innovation of the white paper. It was pretty amazing, but, um, but eventually they're going to start being worried about Bitcoin. um, And it's, it's, it's kind of how it's going to disrupt the dollar system. So that that's when things are going to get really serious, but we're not, we're not there yet. So for now, I mean, you know, we have an SEC commissioner, Hester Peirce, who's been very pro-Bitcoin. We have um, kind of a growing political agreement that Bitcoin is a commodity and should be treated as such. It's not a security. Um, that there's, you know, very favorable tax law for donations and for 501c3s. There's just there's, there's a lot happening that's interesting in Bitcoin that I would have never predicted you know, three years ago. So I think we're heading in a good direction. Absolutely. And, and a lot of a lot of the negative attention. I mean, I mean, this is part of part of the blessing and curse of the volatility of Bitcoin's price. Is when the price is down from recent highs, as it is as it is now, popular interest uh, sort of wanes in the developed world, um, and you know it'll it'll ebb and flow back as that as that changes. But have you seen what have you seen in the developing world in terms of enthusiasm? For Bitcoin, even though there has been a recent sort of price drawdown, do you still see people in the developed world using Bitcoin in increasing numbers, not only for transactions, but as it, but as a way to sort of secure their value in contexts where you often have disastrous monetary policy and, and inflation that even makes the recent you know American levels of inflation uh, look very small by comparison. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, 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 I would agree with you. Is, is there a, what did you want to specifically hit it in that? Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I feel like since the recent price drawdown, there has been less intense opposition to Bitcoin and less hype, and at least the American press, um, if not among the actual sort of American user base. Do you see any waning of interest in the developed world or in the developing world, or is this something that you still see a lot of people turning to? Um, and uh, is is adoption maybe more intense in the developing world than it is in, let's say, an American context? 
I'm not sure. I mean, I still think there's a higher percentage of Americans that are using this thing than than in a lot of developing world countries. But um, look, I mean, these bear markets where Bitcoin is is like way down from its previous dollar all time high is really when adoption happens uh, in many ways. And then and then and then when there's a bull market, it like just sort of explodes. But like if you looked at 2018 and 19, such a huge amount of like kind of foundational growth was um, uh was was laid there. Um, I think you're going to see the same thing now. Like, you know, basically, you know, for the last uh, let's say eight months, um, we've been on a downward trend versus it's Bitcoin's kind of all time high in dollar terms, um, and yet there just continues to be growth and usage. I mean, all of the events that happened in Canada with the truckers, and all of the events that happened in Ukraine, um, all of this happened, you know, as Bitcoin was. You know, essentially in the in ranging in the 30 30 K um, range uh, as opposed to in the 60s. Right. And and that shows you like that. It, it's at the end of the day, it's use case. It, it doesn't necessarily I mean, yes, of course, it matters how valuable it is. And just because of its monetary policy I've, and, and the 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 reckless monetary policy of sovereigns, I think that it will continue to get much more valuable. I think it'll be extremely valuable in 10 years um, and even in five years. But but I do think that. Um, it works just as well at a hundred bucks and or at a million bucks for a lot of things as a network to move value from one place to another, to allow people to be their own bank. Like these are things that have been just as true at any price. So there's obvious network effects and the network stronger when it's more valuable, but like it works. I mean, it works whether it's $20,000 or $50,000 or $10,000, like the Bitcoin network functions just fine. It like kind of like, in, you know, kind of like endogenously it works. You know? Yeah. And especially those 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 use cases that involve securing property rights and securing human rights. Um, that's something that's sort of value agnostic. Um, be the ability of people uh, to transact in a free way, the people, the ability of people to communicate freely. These are things that are unaffected by that volatility. Yeah, and you see, look. You see people use Bitcoin as a network or bridge between monies, and then they just cash out on the other side. You also have seen over the last three years, the global rise of stable coins, which, which are kind of complementary to Bitcoin in many ways, like they're used alongside Bitcoin. And in many countries, the, the, the volume of stable coins you know, outpaces Bitcoin. I mean, you're talking about dollar assets, dollar denominated contracts, essentially, that are permissionless, that don't require ID, that, that can be held in Nigeria or Lebanon or Turkey or Argentina, where you know, citizens can't get dollar denominated contracts at their bank because of different laws and restrictions. So stable coins are very important technology in, in these emerging markets in dictatorial regimes, very important. I don't think technologically they're where, I don't think technologically they're, they're where they are, where they will be in five to 10 years. I think people will be able to figure out ways to actually bring them into Bitcoin. For now, they're on these like parallel chains, which have a lot of risk and they're essentially totally centralized and, and issued by a particular company or corporation. So there tends to be risk there. But ironically, those corporations are kind of, uh, you know, compliant to the U.S. dollar regime. So if you're in Nigeria, your local government can't really do much about Tether. Like it can't, you know, control that. So that's why it's been so helpful. So the rise of stablecoins is very illuminating because it, you know, it shows you that really at the end of the day, like to be fair, in a fair world, every citizen on the planet would have access to dollars and to Bitcoin. I mean, that would be like the idea for me at least. Um, and I think we're going to get there. I think already, if you just have internet, you can get Bitcoin. And then I think soon enough, 
you'll be able to kind of like, let's say on your mobile wallet, receive some Bitcoin and then, and then peg it to the dollar. I, I think that that's like coming and I think that'll be very powerful. That would be an amazing future. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. This has been an illuminating conversation. The book, again, is Check Your Financial Privilege Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating read. And the, the use cases are, are uh, you know, we've just skimmed the surface today in this interview. Alex, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.